So we are in Genesis 19, continuing our study through the book of Genesis, verse by verse. And we're going to be taking two weeks to go over Genesis chapter 19. And the reason we're going to be taking two weeks to go over it is that the first week today, we're going to go over more of the historical, the archaeological uh, view of God's judgment here when he destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we're going to be looking at uh, the evidence that supports the fact that this actually happened and uh, that this isn't just some mythology or something like that. Um, and we're, so we're going to be looking at it from that perspective this morning. We're going to be looking at it from the perspective of the cities, of the culture, uh, of that area, the Valley of Siddim, it's called. And then next week, we're going to be looking at it from, the, uh, from Lot. We're going to be looking at it from the perspective of Lot. There's, the Bible tells us that there's something for us to learn both ways. Okay? So the Bible specifically tells us at least twice that the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah is an example for us to learn from concerning uh, the day of the Lord's wrath, the coming of the Lord, concerning the second coming, concerning the tribulation. And also there's something for us to learn from Lot, from righteous Lot. And his unfortunate uh, position that he finds himself in uh, when judgment comes down. And there's something for us to learn from that as well. So we're going to look at both and it's going to take us two weeks uh, to get through chapter 19. So this morning we're going to read verses 1 through 29. And then next week we'll probably read the whole chapter again. But it'll be good. So chapter 19 of Genesis, verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. And when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth, and he said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. And they said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. And then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. And then the men, the angels, said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Son-in-laws, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his son-in-laws to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered 
So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, and the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out, and they set him outside the city. And as they brought him out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let my escape there. Let me escape there. Is, is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. And he said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth, verse 23, when Lot came to Zoar. And then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like a smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the power of your word. I thank you for the example for us to learn from and the hope that's found in these verses, the hope that's found in Christ. We thank you for this, Lord, and we pray that your words be spoken this morning. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So this area that we're talking about here, this is the Valley of Siddim. Um, uh, the Salt Sea, or as we know, the Dead Sea in that area. Um, some call it the Valley of Jordan as well. It's around that area. And so you have these two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. Now Sodom means, the name Sodom means burning, uh, means burning, <laughs> coincidentally. And uh, the name Gomorrah means submersion, which is actually kind of ironic when we will look at uh, the, what's going to happen here. So when we're looking at God's judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah, we need to know, well, what was Sodom like? I mean, I mean, what was, what was the area like? What was the region like? Right. So we're going to talk geography first. Well, first we know that this area was beautiful. And why? Because if we rewind back to Genesis chapter 13, it tells us that Lot lifted up his eyes. Remember that Lot and Abraham, after they came back out of Egypt and the Egyptians gave them all kinds of wealth, right? They gave them people and animals and all kinds of stuff. And when they came back out of Egypt, they had so much stuff. They had more stuff than they could handle together as one camp. So Abra And this strife was caused between the herdsmen, right? Between Lot's herdsmen, Abraham's herdsmen. People were quarreling and arguing. They weren't getting along anymore because of all this stuff that they had. So Abraham says, okay, well, let's split this up. Lot, you choose first, and I'll pick whatever's left, right? You go left, I'll go right. You go right, I'll go left. You go first. And so it tells us in Genesis 13 that Lot lifted up his eyes, and that he saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered, right? Everywhere, he says, like the garden of the Lord. That would be Eden. He's, he's comparing it to Eden, or at least what he was taught about Eden, right? So he looks at it and he's like, this is like the garden of Eden. And also like the land of Egypt, where he just came out of with Abraham, right? 
in the direction of Zor. And then Moses tells us, well, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, the land was well watered. Lot thought it looked like the Garden of Eden. It was beautiful. It was lush. It was fertile. Right? He loved it. Well, archaeology has proven this. Archaeologically speaking, they have found quite a few interesting things in the excavation of this area and this valley. And one of the things that they have found is that in the ruins of the cities, specifically on the eastern side of the Dead Sea, but in a lot of the cities that they're excavating there, they found that, they, uh, that, they, that not only did the cities have large populations, right? Because it was a beautiful place, so they had large populations. Everyone wanted to move there, right? So, so I mean, they found tombs for over a million individuals in this area. Some say a million and a half tombs that they've found in this valley. Well, they also found evidence of an extensive agricultural system, right? Each city sat along these freshwater springs, and the cities were situated on a high outlook, basically, overlooking the springs and overlooking the wadi, which is, a, you know, the valley or a ravine that sat below them. And during the wet season, of course, that would be filled with water and stuff. And each city had control of their water, which means they could control all these, um, these spring waters and all these waters coming down through the wadi in the wet season. They had control. So they had this agricultural system. And so... So they've found, archaeologically, they have found that these cities are exactly as they're described in Genesis 13. It was a fertile valley. It was well watered. It was beautiful, just as the Bible says. So when you take those combinations of, of where they're living, you know, you have the heat, you have this fertile soil, you have this agricultural system, you have this reliable irrigation. You can see why Lot looked at that and was like, I'm moving there. Right? That's where I want to put my house. That's beautiful. Right? It was like the Garden of Eden. Now, when we go to Genesis chapter 14, you'll notice that Moses tells you when he's talking about the valley, the valley of Siddim, and the cities that are there. Right? When we go to Genesis 14, he tells you, this is really an interesting comment. So the, the, the very first three verses in chapter 14, right? remember this is when Abraham rescues Lot, the kings from the, the north come down and attack the kings from the south, and there's the big war and everything that happens. And, and then Abraham, and Lot gets taken and Abraham has to go rescue Lot, and et cetera. So at the very beginning of the chapter, it says, in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, and Cato-Leomar, uh, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goam, these kings made war with the Bera, the king of Sodom, Bersha, the king of Gomorrah, Shinab, the king of Admah, Shemember, the king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela, which is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, and then Moses adds this, that is the salt sea. Now it's an interesting comment because there's two things that Moses is saying here, right? <clears throat> it's, it's, it's one, it's a geographical reference, right? The salt sea. When he's telling people, when he's writing this book, you want to know where this was, the salt sea. It's the salt sea. But he's also saying it's the salt sea. <laughs> and so what that means is... <clears throat> Um, that the topography of the land has changed between the time of Abraham and between the time of Moses. Okay? It is the Salt Sea at the time of Moses. It was the Valley of Siddim at the time of Abraham. Right? Let me show you a map. I, I got pictures today. I felt like being extra, you know, studious or whatever. 
So you see this, this is the Dead Sea. And you see how there's two parts to the Dead Sea? There's the southern and the northern part of the Dead Sea. So <clears throat> you can see this is where they think some of the cities, no one agrees on this, by the way. You can find 50 different maps with 50 different locations on them. But so you have the, you have the northern and the southern part of the Dead Sea. Well, what Moses is saying is, is that the Valley of Siddim, which would be the southern part of the Dead Sea, uh, was the valley at the time of Abraham. It's the Dead Sea at the time of Moses, which means the Dead Sea has expanded. Right? So the Dead Sea is the lowest spot on the Earth's surface. Right? It's roughly 1,286 feet below the sea level, the Jordan River, you can't really tell, but the Jordan River comes down from the top into the Dead Sea. The Jordan River empties into the Dead Sea, uh, but the Dead Sea itself has no outlet. So the heat of the area evaporates great quantities of water, and the salinity of the sea increases while the water de decreases. Right? So the sea is dying, hence the name Dead Sea. The sea is dying. They don't know exactly how much longer the Dead Sea has, but they know it's dying, and it's been dying for quite a while. Right? So it's 40 miles long by 10 miles wide. It's divided into the two parts now. It wasn't necessarily two parts back at the time of Abraham. And it's connected by this little narrow strait. The southern segment, the one on the bottom, is about 10 miles long. It's about 10 to 20 feet deep. So it's not very deep. However, the northern segment is around 1,400 feet deep in spaces. So it's much deeper. So in Abraham's time, the southern segment was possibly smaller, if it existed at all. And the valley, the lush valley, the fertile valley that's being referred to here, where all the cities were, Sodom and Gomorrah and all these other cities that are listed in Genesis 14, for example. Um, in Abraham's time, that fertile plain surrounded the southern segment, or the southern segment didn't even exist yet. Right? And see, because what it did is it changed, right? So either the southern segment didn't exist at all, and after the destruction of the cities, the southern area grew out of the northern area. And then the reason it's growing, because it is growing, by the way, the, the Dead Sea is growing. The reason it's growing is that the water is coming from the northern section into the southern section, uh, but because the, the, the bed, the bed of the sea in, uh, is silted up more, it's becoming more salty and there's more salt formations and stuff like that. It's causing the water level to rise and spread. And over time, what it's done is it's expanded out. And eventually what it has done is it's covered the valley of Siddam. So a lot of the cities that they're excavating and that you have historically talked about in the Bible and other references, they can't actually get to because they're covered by the Dead Sea now. So when Moses says that the Valley of Siddam is the Dead Sea, or the Salt Sea, he's literally telling them those cities existed where that sea is right now. They weren't that sea wasn't that big necessarily back then. Right? Possibly there was some cataclysmic event that caused the sea to change, right? Things have changed. The valley has changed. And we know this because the Bible tells us. 
Deuteronomy chapter 29, for example. Verse 23, it says, The whole land burned out with brimstone and salt, nothing sown and nothing growing, where no plant can sprout, an overthrow like that of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and his wrath. So what he's saying is that when the Lord overthrew, first of all, he didn't just destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. He destroyed at least right there in Deuteronomy, two other cities, Adma and Zeboim as well. The Bible tells us that all the cities were engaged in sexual immorality. All the cities had gone bad in that sense. So we learn that the Lord is overthrew at least four cities and that the beautiful valley that attracted Lot is no longer beautiful in Moses' time, right? The fertile, well-watered, plush valley is now dust and dirt and salt and ashes and sulfur, right? It changed. So in all that, then, we know, you know how the area itself changed. But in all that, what was Sodom like? Right? Here, let me show you some pictures of the Salt Sea before we get too far. Because right? the Salt Sea is beautiful. And next week, I'm going to use the Salt Sea as an illustration when we're talking about Lot to tell you why it's not so beautiful. But there are some fantastic pictures of the salt sea and the buildup. And when you look at things off in the distance, like that mountain there, I don't know if that's Mount Sodom or not. I'll show you a picture of Mount Sodom later. That looks like dirt. That's, major, that's mainly salt. Those things are all mainly salt. There's huge salt buildups uh, along the salt sea. It's one of the, of course, most visited places when you go to Israel, right? Everyone wants to go float in the Salt Sea. Just don't, just don't turn over. I'll explain that later. <clears throat> so, in the midst of all this beauty or this once really beautiful, plush, fertile valley that is no longer a fertile valley, valley like that. There was these cities. So what were these cities like? I mean, people want to know, well, why did God judge Sodom and Gomorrah? So, you know, I mean, I mean he, he leveled them. He destroyed all these cities in the valley. Right? So what was it like? What was Sodom like? Well, Sodom was one of the wealthiest and the most luxurious cities in the plain. It was the chief city. It was a metropolis, which means it was the chief city. Right? There are many historians who specifically, so when you go through the, the older, even Greek historical records and some of this, they specifically talk about Sodom being the chief city of the cities in the valley. So it was the metropolis. And they have, of course, you have this extremely desirable climate in which to live, and it's great for agriculture, and it's, you know, it's great for life in general. And a lot of people, you know, it attracted a lot of people, so it had this huge population. It was very populated. And we know there were, you know, when we go back to Genesis 14, that, you know, there was at least, you know, five cities. Some people say there was 13 cities in the area, of which Sodom was the chief city. But we know it was at least chief, chief city to five cities because they're labeled in Genesis 14. But as Sodom did, all the other cities followed. Right? They led the way. All the other cities followed suit. Kind of like how, you know, I don't want to get involved in politics too much, but kind of like how Washington State follows California. 
everything they do down in California, Washington does next. We're going to ban electric vehicles. And Washington says, we're going to ban electric vehicles. Right? Yeah, gas. Well, they should ban electric vehicles, but that's a different, that's a different story, I guess. I guess I was speaking out of... Anyway, kind of like that. So whatever Sodom did, all the other cities just followed, right? Yet sometime along the line, historically speaking, the people developed a moral laxity and uh, that gr grew into a gross corruption. And finally, God couldn't endure it any longer. And judgment came, right? In that sense, spiritually speaking, it was no longer a Garden of Eden, right? I mean, Jesus said himself back in chapter 18 when he was talking with Moses, uh, with Abraham, sorry, he told him, he said, listen, the cry, the cry is great, right? Their sin is grievous. So we know it was pretty bad down there. The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah was great. This is what Josephus wrote. Jo Josephus was a historian at the time of Jesus. This is what he wrote. He said, the Sodomites grew proud on account of their riches and great wealth. They became unjust towards men and unholy towards God, insomuch that they did not call to mind the advantages that they received from him. They hated strangers and abused themselves with sodomical practices, sodomy. Right? God was therefore much displeased at them and determined to punish them for their pride and to overthrow their city and to lay waste their country till there should ne neither plant nor fruit grow out of it. So that's what Josephus wrote. Josephus also wrote that God then cast a thunderbolt upon the city and set it on fire with its inhabitants and laid waste the country with burning. I mean, that was over 2,000 years ago, the historical record of what he wrote. It tells us in Ezekiel chapter 16, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. So we have to ask ourselves then, what was the abomination? Right? What was the abomination? Well, that word for abomination is also used in the Leviticus 18. It's the same word, same Hebrew word. Still translated abomination. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. They did an abomination before me, God says. So as soon as I saw it, I took them out. Right? So the sin that we're referring there specifically is male homosexuality. That's the sin that's being referred to specifically. It's not the only sin that was being done in Sodom and Gomorrah. Right? But when we read the events here in the chapter, in chapter 19, and I hope we don't gloss over this when we read it because they're very nice in their translation of the Hebrew. But when we read the events here, you know, when you see the depravity Within Sodom, at first it seems unbelievable. Right? I mean, the two angels come into town. They find Lot sitting at the gate. So he's seemingly an official of the town because that's where most of the city official, political, governmental, judgmental, you know, that's where all the business took place was at the gate of the town and that's where Lot was hanging out. So we would seem that he was an official of sorts. And so Lot sees them and he implores them to stay with him. When you, when you look at that in the Hebrew, it means he was forcibly blunt. He wasn't being polite in that sense. He wasn't like, hey, you guys want to stay with me? You know, because, you know, we talked about how that there's that hospitality was a big thing in the culture, right? Uh, but it, this wasn't, 
his hospitality necessarily. This was Lot being like, listen, it is not safe for you out on the streets in this town, so you guys should come and stay at my house. And so he was forcibly blunt with them. Come on, you're not going to stay outside on the streets. You're not going to hang around the well. Don't go to the center of the town. Come, come, come on. Like, it's really interesting because they had to be forcibly blunt in a sense with Lot too to get him out of town. So, so anyway, he gets them in. We'll go more into that next week when we talk about Lot. It was as if he was trying to shield them from the abuse he knew possibly that would happen, right? We'll give him the benefit of the doubt for now. So it's not safe out there on the streets. And then we see why. Because immediately what do we see? We see the perversion. We see the depravity of the Sodom, of the people in Sodom, the Sodomites. Right? It says in verse 4, And five, it says, but before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man. All the people to the last man. Every male in the city, everyone, surrounded the house and they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we may know them. Right? We may know them. They don't don't just want to have a cup of coffee with these guys. Right? Bring them over to Starbucks. We want to meet these guys. We, we, we're, you know, they came in. We, we love strangers. Yeah, they did, right? For all the wrong reasons. I mean, this is sodomy. This is what they're referring to. We may know them as referring to, they want to have sex with the men who came in. That's what it's referring to in the Hebrew. Like I said, the translations are very polite. Right? It says, we may know them. I mean, it's an attempted homosexual gang rape, to be blunt. That's what it is. All the men of the city, young and old, people from every quarter, people from every house, everyone, every man. I, I can't comprehend it, really, right? They're, they're not practicing their evil deeds in secret. They're shouting them aloud in the streets. This is how we are. This is how we greet you. Come on out so that we may know you. The only way you can live a degenerate lifestyle like this is to first reject God. Right? You reject him as creator, you reject him as sovereign, you reject him as, as, as authority. Right? Rebellion against God leads to gross and moral depravity, to per- perversion, to subversion. Now, the angels, of course, they take matters into their own hands because Lot wasn't going to be able to protect them. Matter of fact, Lot found out just how popular he was in the town right away when they said, we're going to do worse to you than to them just because you're trying to stop us. We don't care about you, Lot. So, but the angels take matters into their own hands and they strike all the men with blindness that they can't see a thing. It says that they just wear themselves out even trying to find the door. They're just completely blind. Right? Proverbs 4.19, the way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not over, know which, whatever they stumble, right? It's like they, didn't, they had no clue. They were completely blind. They had no idea which way was up. They couldn't find the door. They just wear themselves out. And then the angels in the morning force Lot and his family, which happens to be only his wife and his two unmarried daughters, his sons, sons-in-laws, none of them came, right? They, they, they basically drag him out of town. The angels are like, you have to leave. Come on, right? And then judgment comes down. Right? The Lord destroys the place. We see that in verse 23. Is where it starts. And the sun had risen on the earth when the lot 
came to Zoar, and then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. He destroyed everything in that area. And then it tells us later in verse 27 and 28, you know, Abraham went up early and Abraham grabbed his cup of coffee in his morning newspaper and he walked out to that spot where he had stood before the Lord and had that conversation with Jesus, right? And he looks down towards Sodom and Gomorrah, it says, and towards the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace, dark and black and ugly. The whole area had been destroyed. The Lord destroyed the place. And as we have already heard, he didn't just destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. He destroyed all these cities in there, in the valley. It says in Jude 1.7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire or strange flesh, as some of your translations may say, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of internal fire. There's one of the examples that we see that the Bible tells us that Sodom and Gomorrah are, are is. It's an example of God's punishment upon sin. So you think of something, an event like this happened, so cataclysmic, right? So horrendous, so just, I mean, you'd think there'd be evidence, right? You'd think that they would find evidence for years to come. Everything just laid to waste. All these cities, let's say, there were, let's say there were 13 cities, even though we don't know all the names for all of them, even though we only know the names of you know, four or five, and we know they spared some of the cities. Uh, we'll get into that in just a second about how precise God is. You would think that people would have heard it. People would have, like, what's that noise? You guys remember when Mount St. Helens erupted, right? I mean... We're up here, and Mount St. Helens is way down there, and we're like, what was that? You know? So if you imagine something great like this happening, there was, it has to be evidence. Well, there is evidence, right? They have found a ton of evidence. They, of course, don't attribute it to God or God's judgment or anything uh, supernatural in that sense. They try to naturalize everything that they find. There's a ton of evidence. They've found a lot. There are a lot of sulfur balls or brimstone balls in the area. You know what's really interesting about them? These sulfur balls and brimstone balls are only found in the ruins of the cities that they find. They're not found in between the cities. It means God was precise. He knew exactly what he was bringing his judgment down on, and anything that wasn't going to be judged didn't get hit. Right? There's no collateral damage. There's no collateral damage. Everything God said he would destroy, he destroyed. Everything he said he wouldn't, like Zoar, for example. Right? I don't have that map up here, but Zoar, for example, was spared. If, if they hadn't given Lot you know, that mercy, him mercy there, Okay, yeah, fine, you can go to Zoar. We we'll spare it. Zoar would have been destroyed too. But it wasn't. Right? Let's see. This, is the, uh, this area here is where they think Sodom is. It's one of the areas, but this is the most popular at the moment. 
like I said, they, have, they find sites and they think, well, I don't know, could be, possibly. There's not like there's names or you know, plaques they find. This was the city of Sodom or anything like that. They don't know. So, so that's one of the areas that they think Sodom. Here's a closer up view of the, of the excavation work they're doing in that area of the cities that's going on right now and such. But having gone through all this, they're going through all this archaeological work, they're finding that the sulfur is unique and different from all the other sulfur found in the world. The sulfur found in this area is 90 to 95% pure. It's white, unlike any other sulfur found anywhere else in the world, and it's so pure that you can light it on fire and it burns a hot blue flame right on the spot. Right? And this is really interesting. I told you that the sulfur balls were not found they were between the cities, right? showing that God had very good precision aim, right? There's also, though, a lot of ash in this area and the material of the formations of the cities. They're looking at the material that's, that, that seemingly has made up the formation of the cities now. And the, uh, it's calcium sulfate, which is what limestone and sulfur become when they're heated. So the material's changed, right? And there's a lot of charcoal layers found in the strata of these city ruins. And the amount of ash and charcoal and calcium sulfate reveal an overwhelming evidence of extreme heat in these cities. But yet there's no geothermal activity in these areas to explain the ash or the charcoal or the calcium sulfate. A current site they're excavating, which might even be this one right here, which they call the uh, city of Tel El Hamon, um, and they won't. They they say it could possibly, maybe, you know, perhaps be Sodom, but we don't know if it is or not. Um, they found it located on high ground in the southern Jordan Valley, northeast of the Dead Sea. They say that this city that they're they're working on right now, it was at one time ten times larger than Jerusalem, fifteen times, five times longer than Jericho. Um, they say that its building stood possibly, you know, five stories tall. It was a really big city. And uh, examining the ruins, they found evidence of a sudden high-temperature destructive event. Pottery pieces that were melted on the outside but untouched inside. Pottery shards with outer surfaces melted into glass, bubbled mud brick, partially melted building material, and that's all indications of an anomalously high-temperature event, much hotter than anything the technology of the time could produce. They've found shocked quartz, which is sand grains that contain cracks from that only form under very high pressure. And quartz, of course, is one of the hardest minerals, so it's very hard to shock quartz. After examining all these things and all the possibilities of what may have caused them, because they have lots of theories, right? Lots of naturalistic theories, earthquakes and, you know, lava and all kinds of things coming up from the ground. You know, they can't, they just have theories. But after examining all these possibilities, they claim that the best possible scenario is that a space rock came down. (laughs) Though they have found no crater for any such meteorite or, or anything like that. So they say that the, they attribute to damage to an airburst created when a meteor or a comet travels through the atmosphere at high speed. It would have exploded about two and a half miles above the city in a blast about a thousand times more powerful than an atomic bomb. The air temperatures would have then rapidly risen over 3,600 degrees Fahrenheit. Clothing and wood immediately burst into flames. Sword spears, mud bricks, and pottery would begin to melt. And almost immediately, the entire city would have been on fire. 
which is why they found objects of daily life, carbonized pieces of wooden beams, charred grain, bones, limestone cobbles burned to a chalk-like consistency. The airburst, they say, may also explain the anonymously high concentration of salt that they've found in the destructive layer as well in their excavations. They say there's an average of 4% of salt in the sediment and as high as 25% in some areas. They say the salt was thrown up due to high impact pressure because it may be that the impact partially hit the Dead Sea if the Dead Sea was in that area. So the impact may have redistributed those salt crystals far and wide. Now at the south west corner of the Dead Sea is a place they call the Mount of Sodom. That's the Mount of Sodom. And it's a great mountain of rock that stands 700 feet high and five miles long. But it's a salt formation. Yes, there's dirt and stuff mixed in with it, but it's primarily salt. But the difference between the salt formation, like the Mount of Sodom that they have there, and the salt that's in the Dead Sea is this. These are volcanic phenomena. The Mount of Sodom, they say, is a volcanic phenomena. They say it's the result of a massive precipitation from magma and waters that were one time possibly situated in the depths of the earth. But somehow they were blown into the air and fell back onto the earth again. Or so they say. Maybe they just came from the heavens. There's a strange thought. Right? All this is incredibly fascinating when you look at it. I mean, there's so much material to read on the evidence of Sodom and Gomorrah. But it's all just a naturalistically a way of trying to explain what they're finding without attributing it to what the Bible says. What about a supernatural way? Right? How about God just made it rain sulfur and fire from heaven? How does that work? It would explain for pretty much all of this. But they don't want to do that. But that is what happened. I'll show you this one really quick before we go. This is also Mount Sodom. That stone right there, that's Lot's wife. That's what they call it. They call that, they have all these strange outcroppings, right? They refer to that one as Lot's wife. That was around even at the time of Josephus. He refers to it in his writings. He says, Lot's wife still stands now. I've seen it. Right? But that's all salt. That's all salt. So you're like, this is all fascinating stuff, really. But what does that mean for me? Right? What does that mean for me? I mean, what does this teach me? Well, I think when we look at this, we have to look at it a couple of ways. One is, how is Sodom like the world we live in today? If Sodom was so bad that when, you know, God said that the, 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 the cries, right, were just so great, and their sin was so grievous that he 
brought fire and sulfur down from heaven and destroyed all the cities in the valley. Their sin was so great. And how do they compare to the world we live in today? Here's the thing. Wickedness is universal. And the wicked are unanimous in their corruption. Right? We saw here in, in the town of Sodom, all men, all men, the old and the young from every quarter engaged in this debauchery. Right? That means the leaders, the politicians, the priests of the town, if there were any, right? All men of the town were aiding and abetting. And they were brazenly open. Right? They were daring and unashamed of the lifestyle that they lived. They were declaring a war on righteousness. Well, that doesn't sound any different than the world we live in today, which has declared a war on righteousness. It tells us in Romans 1, if you want to, it's kind of like a, a really good commentary, even though it's not specifically a commentary necessarily on Sodom and Gomorrah, but it is a commentary about evil and wickedness, right? And it tells us in Romans 1, like verses 26, starting in verse 26, it says, for the, this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. We talked last week about how God will give them up and then give them over to their dishonorable passions. And in that, they bring judgment upon themselves, right? It says, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Right? They were proud of their sodomy. Proud of their homosexuality. Right? Proud of their depravity. There was a lot of pride going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. Right? They were awarded and applauded for it. Right? That's how it is today. Right? If we don't affirm other people's perverted and subverted choices, we don't affirm their confused genders, then, then we're called racist and fascist and all bunch of other names right? just because we don't agree with them or we won't support it or, or our beliefs are different the world today they I mean I don't want to be too harsh about it but they want to mutilate your children it's easier for children to get access to you know that type of thing for uh, I'm, I want to be a boy I want to be a girl right and, and the doctors are posting pictures on their Instagram, you know, feeds of the sex surgery that they just did with the little, it's easier for a child to do that now without, and you can't like, you, you know, you're getting a lot of flack for standing in the way, for calling it out, for people who are trying, you know, they, it's, they want to mutilate your children and then they want to murder their children. I'm talking about abortion, Right. And they want you just to accept it as normal. It's, it's all right. 
and they're not ashamed of it. They're not ashamed of it. Isaiah 3, 9 says, For the look on their faces bear witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. Right? That's what they've done. Matthew Henry says this, When the disease of sin has become epidemical, it is fatal. Those that have become impudent in sin generally prove impenitent in sin, which means they don't repent. And it will be their ruin. Those have hard hearts indeed that sin with a high hand. And Jeremiah 6.15 says this, Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore they shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I punish them, they shall be overthrown. So how does this compare? Well, the Bible tells us about the last days. Or as we can tell when we're getting close to them, it says, as in the days of Lot. Right? Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all, so it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. What does that mean? That means they just continued to live their immoral lives as if it was nothing. And then judgment came. And judgment is coming. And we are not without hope. We are not without hope. And there is hope for those, our friends, our neighbors, who are caught up in this as well. See, Second Peter tells us this. Another example It says, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, Mm -hmm. for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. The Lord knows how to keep you safe. The Lord says you will not suffer the wrath. You are not going to suffer wrath. But judgment is coming. It is coming. He has to come. And people say, well, that's not right because it doesn't seem right. God can't judge like that. God can't come do these things like that. That's not the belief of God I have. That's not the God I believe in. That's not the God. That's not how I think about judgment, right? They, we try to take their view. They try to take their views of judgment and line them up. This is my view of judgment and how it should work. And this doesn't line up with what I think it should be. But you have to understand God is a righteous judge and everything he does, he does righteously. And if Sodom and Gomorrah is an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly, that we should take that example literally and understand what's going to happen. Is really, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. God has given us an example. There is archaeological evidence to prove that the flood happened. There is archaeological evidence to prove that Sodom and Gomorrah happened. Just as people will be able to look out at creation and not have an excuse about God and what he's done. They can look at history and the evidence that's out there and not have an excuse about how God judges because it's just as prevalent. So they are without excuse. So what do we do? What's a, what, you know, what do we do? 
Well, we know that God's not going to judge the righteous with the wicked. We know that. And if we have our faith in Christ, then we know that we will not be judged in that way. Just as he pulled Lot out of this town before he destroyed it, he's going to rapture us out before tribulation starts. And since we know how bad it's going to be, and we know what the examples are of what's going to happen to the ungodly, then we need to be testifying to the truth of that, not backing down from it. And we probably know people who might be caught up in alternative lifestyles, might be caught up in some of this and think it's just normal. And they might even want you, maybe you're part of their family, and you love them dearly. They might want you to accept it. And you just have to be truthful with them. No, I don't accept it. It's not right. I love you. I love you. Which is why I can't accept it. Because I don't want it for you. Because I know the damage that it causes. And I know the damage that's going to happen. If you don't turn to Jesus. And I don't want that for you. So we can be a light in the darkness. And we have to be. Because these type, this judgment like we see with Sodom and Gomorrah, this isn't fiction. It happened. And it's going to happen again. It's going to happen again. And we need to be testifying to the truth of who Jesus is. And where hope can be found for those who are without Jesus.